about to find out what happens when I try doing this on one hour of sleep. But, oh yeah, so I, I did say pen and paper was allowed, and it's actually going to be necessary, I think, at various points in this episode. So uh, make sure you have that. I mean, it should obviously be blank. All right. Welcome to episode two of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Our guests today are Gavin Burns, Ryan Rosenberg, and Jason Luna. That order is arbitrary, but remember it because it'll be consistent throughout the game. And so can we each now go in that order and say where you're Skyping from and one sentence or so about yourself, starting with Gavin. My name is Gavin. I live in Brooklyn. I love root beer. Ryan. My name is Ryan. I live in Palo Alto, and I'm currently eating Pepper Jack cheese crisps. Cool. Yeah, volume's slightly low. I can hear you if I, like, lean in, but yeah. So. All right. Trying to speak up. All right. Jason? I am Jason. I'm currently in San Diego, California. I am an aspiring actor and writer. All right. We've had multiple, well, some aspiring, some already professional screenwriters on the show in last season. Okay, so this game is in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. So these questions will mostly serve as kind of a difficult warm-up, but they'll be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers if necessary. For this round only, you will answer as individuals. If the first person the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second, then the third if the second also misses. So the further back you are, the less of a direct shot you have, but the more time you have to think. And some potential answers could get taken off the table. And also, of course, remember to um, listen to the question the first time I read it, so I don't have to keep repeating it. So we'll rotate so each of you gets to answer three questions in first position, three in second position, and three in third position. The rules will change after this round, and I'll explain that when it happens. And just a standard reminder, the content of the podcast is you talking through your thinking process, so don't internalize your thinking. Feel free to share any interesting connections. You don't have to talk just for the sake of talking, though. And Ryan is the only one who's been on it before, although they were special circumstances then, but a change that has been made since then is I've now figured out it often works better to put the text of the question in the chat. So uh, you will be able to see the text of the question in addition to hearing it. Yep. All right, so we will start with Gavin in first position on question one. Nobel laureate Dr. Alexis Carroll graced the cover of the June 13th, 1938 issue of Time magazine alongside What Man? Together, they had invented a perfusion pump, also seen in that cover photograph, intended to allow transplantable bodily organs to be kept viable outside of the body for extended periods of time. Ah, you're going to put that in the chat, right? <laughs> All right, cool. Dang, I heard 1930s time, and I was like, oh, maybe it's Hitler. Uh, but it is not Hitler. Hitler did not invent a perfusion pump. So it's going to be some kind of medical dude. Oh, geez. All right, I, I, I'm sure I don't have much time here, so let's... Go with uh, <laughs> Albert Einstein. It's not him. I have a good guess. It's uh, Ryan next. Hmm. So, yeah. So I don't know this straight off. It's probably going to be somebody who's more notable for other things. Although Carol's in it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I just don't really have a guess. But perfusion pump, that's something that doesn't have to be biology. It could be, could be somebody notable for chemistry. So, I don't know, Pauling. All right, good guess. I think he's maybe a slightly later era, but... Yeah. All right, Jason? All right, time for the really bad guess here. Uh, I'm going to just go with someone sciencey and famous. I'm going to say uh, Crick. 
All right, yeah. So this, again, you know, sort of the Dr. Carroll was the one who supplied kind of the medical expertise. This was someone who, you know, was more kind of mechanically inclined, but took an interest in organ transplants when I believe his sister-in-law got a fatal illness of some sort. But he was, in fact, quite famous for doing other things. His name was Charles Lindbergh. We're going to do great. It's very common for this ground to be low scoring. As I said, it's meant to be deliberately difficult to kind of throw you in at the deep end. But we'll start with Ryan on the next question, which is also aviation related. To fans of Contract Bridge, Dorothy Rice Sims is known as the longtime partner and wife, partner in the bridge sense as well as spouse, of champion P. Hal Sims and as the inventor or popularizer of the so-called psychic bid. But back during her previous marriage to a painter named Waldo Peirce, she drew headlines when she and aviation pioneer Lawrence Ferry were fished out of the water following a November 1916 plane crash. Today, that crash is remembered pretty much only because of its association with what contemporary three-word phrase? Okay, Dorothy Rice Sims fished out. What modern three-word phrase? That probably has to do with plane crashes in some sense. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm thinking through phrases that I might associate with plane crashes or like drowning in a lake. But yeah, I really don't have anything here or anything that fits really well. So yeah, I don't know. I'll say uh, much too much. All right. Yeah. Always, always guess something. All right, uh, Jason. I'm in the same boat of guessing something to guess it. I'm thinking famous landing, so I'm going to say Eagle has landed. Oh, that's a creative guess. I like that. But uh, not correct. Gavin? Uh, well, my first thought is wet-ass plane crash, but that seems wrong. Uh, I don't have a better answer, though, so I'm going to go with man the torpedoes. All right, so the two uh, relevant pieces of information that I left out that might, that you know would have pointed you toward the answer more directly, I think, one of Lawrence Berry's biggest claims to fame as an aviation pioneer is that he invented an autopilot. And the other thing that would have been helpful to know is that when the pair were fished out of the water, they were reportedly both naked. And so they are at least unofficially considered the first two inductees into the Mile High Club. <laughs> uh, weirdly, I was close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. WAP, Mile High, yeah. All right, next question, we'll start with Jason in first position. Notably featured in the opening credits of Dynasty, what mansion in Woodside, California, known for its picturesque gardens, was built at the behest of William Bowers Bourne II, whose Spring Valley Water Company held a decades-long monopoly on San Francisco's water service? Its name derives from Bourne's personal motto, fight for a just cause, love your fellow man, live a good life. He must have accidentally left out the part about cutting off a basic necessity if people don't pay you through the nose. Am I coming through? Yeah. I think I might have froze for a second there. Oh. I don't have the text in the chat. I heard the question, though. Okay. I'm comfortable answering it, mostly because I don't know. But uh, I'm, just, I'm just thinking famous buildings built by rich people. This is totally wrong, but the Hearst Castle, somehow. Yeah. I see where you're coming from. That is a famous California mansion, definitely. But yeah, that one was probably built for Hearst, I think. Yeah, Julia yeah. Morgan design, probably. So I'll pass it to Gavin. Uh, so since I have, I mean, I, I could try to think of buildings in California, but given uh, the whole pay you through the nose thing, I'm going to go with Bilkmore. 
<laughs> I see. Uh, I see the wordplay you were going for there. Very, very nice, Ryan. Yeah, I also don't know this. There are lots of mansions in Southern California. Oh, I guess this is Northern California because it's SF, not LA. Both both have water service being cut off. I need to get around the Bay Area more. But yeah, I assume it's the author of the quote. I don't know, like Aurelian or something. Yeah, I think this is, I guess it must be a pretty, or was a big tourist attraction in the Bay Area. It's probably closed now. But yeah, if you shorten each each of those phrases to one word, you get fight, love, live. If you shorten them even further, you get phyloli, F-I-L-O-L-I, which is the name of the mansion. Wow. I would actually but I was trying to do it in like Latin and like pujam vive, but that seemed like a dumb name for a building. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Wow. That is a, uh, it's like 15 minutes from here or something. Oh, well. You got to visit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. We're 0 for 9 so far. Let's keep it up. All right. Starting out with Gavin in first position. Obviously inspired by John Adams' Nixon in China. A 2020 comic opera details the true story of what man's visit to a Randall supermarket in Clear Lake near Houston, Texas, during the waning days of the Cold War. Uh, <laughs> this question rules. I have no idea. I'm going to, just based on the uh, symmetry, I'm going to guess Mikhail Gorbachev. Very good guess, but unfortunately not correct. Ryan? So I know Xi Jinping studied abroad in the u.s but he was in iowa but i i mean that would make sense i'll just say xi jinping yeah xi jinping was in muscatine iowa it's a clue i've used in writing an aqt question before good thinking but not correct here jason uh i was thinking on the same lines of gavin so i'm just gonna guess cold war juxtaposition and say boris yeltsin so the title of the opera is yeltsin in texas (laughs) oh Great job, dude. Thanks, Gavin, for the assist. <laughs> so Gavin was definitely on the right lines, but Jason is first on the scoreboard with a tenth of a point. Good job. Mm-hmm. All right. And I think Ryan is in first position for the next one. Okay. Canadian musical theater composer Galt McDermott is today remembered chiefly for Hair and the multiple pop hits spawned by its soundtrack. But his only Tony Award for Best Musical actually came a few years later in 1972 for a rock adaptation of which not-so-memorable Shakespeare play? Oh, boy. Time to pick a not-so-memorable Shakespeare play. I mean, it's obviously somewhat memorable because it's by Shakespeare, <laughs> but yes. it's relative. It's going to be at least somewhat memorable because I will have to remember it in order to say the title. What do I think would make a good rock? I mean, I don't know. It does seem somewhat memorable. Uh, I'll say Coriolanus. Interesting to, to think about how that might be a musical. But yeah, I mean, it was a, a film about a decade ago that was well-received. So yeah. good guess, but not correct. Jason? It's just, uh, well, it's not, I'm not going to say Coriolanus. But so speaking of another random Shakespeare play, I'll say The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Was that a random guess? Yes. Okay, because it was, actually it was discussed, I think, in episode five. I think Joel has some... Um, not this exact question, but a similar question about what the only, or, you know, about Shakespeare-derived musicals that won the best musical Tony. Because people think of West Side Story. Which didn't win. Kiss Me, Kate won the very first best musical Tony. The Lion King, which is arguably very loosely derived from Hamlet, also won. And in 1972, the winner was Two Gentlemen of Verona. 
Wow. <laughs> I want to give some of my points away. This is too much. <laughs> there you go. All right. And you will now get first crack at the next question. So, unsatisfied with the eye candy role she received on 60s TV, most notably as a miniskirt filling secretary on The Man from Uncle, Lee Chapman branched out and became one of the few women of her era to write teleplays for episodic action adventure series. She turned to penning features in the 1970s and continued to specialize in testosterone driven projects like the 1980 action film The Octagon. The star of The Octagon must have remembered her because under the pseudonym Louise McCarn, she scripted the 1993 pilot telefilm that introduced the world to which television protagonist? Wow. 1993, is, nothing really jumps to mind. All right, it came to mind. It's kind of a funny thing to say out loud. So, Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. All right, that's a very good guess in about the right time period, but not correct. Gavin? Okay, so the octagon, that's sort of like a fighting deal. So you might want someone who's, like, fighting people a bunch. But I can't think of any TV shows about boxers. And I was going to say, like, one of the X-Files people, but I don't remember which one was a man and which one was a woman out of Scully and Mulder. So that's, and that also, that's probably just wrong. So I'm going to go with... Uh, I really have nothing. Uh, <laughs> Scully. All right, I see your logic there, but... Yeah, that uh, probably they were both introduced at the same time, so it'd be hard to think about one as being But all right, Ryan? Hmm. It's a telefilm, so not like a normal, it's like a series that doesn't really, it's not going to be a sitcom character, maybe some sort of action protagonist. I have no idea. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Mulder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wasn't the same issue. But yeah, both you and Gavin were right to think about protagonists who dished out violence in the name of the law. But the one introduced in 1993 was Walker, Texas Ranger. Oh, okay. That's gettable, yeah. All right. All right. Unfortunately, Jason can't make it three in a row. But we'll have one remaining cycle of these and start with Gavin in first position on this. Between 1993 and 2000, inclusive, Pete Sampras did not lose a single match in men's singles at Wimbledon, aside from the haywire upset-heavy year of 1996, when two men who had never made a Grand Slam men's singles final before and would never make one again, Richard Krajicek and Malivai Washington, played each other for the championship. Krajicek won, making him the only Grand Slam singles champion during the Open era to represent which nation? All right. Well, if I don't get this one, I'm not going to get any because I I like sports and I like Eastern European languages. So I am going to. Oh, but is there any other fellas in there? Uh, It's 1996. So it's after that. Uh, I'm just going to go with I'm just going to go with my first instinct. Czechia or the Czech Republic. Yeah, I mean, that is. Definitely a Czech surname, so, you know, if this were a straightforward, just infer from the surname question, but unfortunately, um, things are a little more complex here, so, uh, sorry, that's not right. Uh, Ryan? Yeah, I had similar thinking that it's a Czech surname, so it's presumably, presumably he has Czech parents, they immigrated to some country where Richard is a common name, so I'm going to guess Canada. Good guess, but I'm pretty sure there have been other Grand Slam singles champions. I think um, the one who just won, like last year, from Romania, or 
of Romanian oh, descent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Andrescu. Andrescu is Canadian, yep. Yeah. All right, but good guess, Jason? I don't, I don't have any knowledge or a good guess here. I'll, I'll stick with the, if I, if I, no, I'll just say, uh, stick with the Richard thing, United Kingdom, I'm just totally lost, you know. Yeah, they've had multiple champions, but yeah, I think the country that gave us probably the best wheelchair tennis player of all time, but not really produced champions in conventional tennis, it's the Netherlands. Wow. Yeah. Well, makes sense. All right. And now the last of these, that will start with Ryan in first position. Yeah, this question has a few red herrings in it, which you'll have to kind of steer around. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right, so there's, there's no need to invoke a butterfly effect to understand why, if not for the actions of a certain woman, I wouldn't be here hosting this podcast today. Who was that woman? A successful playwright who detoured into politics, served two terms as a U.S. representative from Connecticut, and sponsored the legislation allowing people from India to permanently immigrate and become naturalized citizens of the U.S. She later served as U.S. ambassador to Italy, where the records of her secretary, Tish Baldridge, the sister of Malcolm Baldridge Jr., the rodeo-loving cabinet secretary I discussed back in episode 18, suggests that she may have coined the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished. Hmm. Successful playwright became representative from Connecticut. Hmm. I have a guess. I, I think she did serve in Congress. And she is sufficiently, yeah, sufficiently famous and, like, well connected enough that, that that all these could match. I'm I'm trying not to focus on any one particular fact because because of the red herrings here. So I'll say Claire Claire Booth loose. Yeah, so the legislation signed by President Truman that allowed people from India and the Philippines, I believe, it set immigration quotas mm-hmm. and set up a path to naturalization, was called the Loose Seller Act, and it was co-sponsored by Claire Booth loose. Good job. All right. All right. And last question of this round, which we'll start with Jason in first position. The constellation Coma Berenices represents the hair that Queen Berenice II of Egypt is said to have sacrificed to ensure victory in war and safe return for her husband, Ptolemy III. Before marrying Ptolemy, Berenice was already queen regnant of Saranaica, and one of the most prominent cities in Saranaica was renamed Berenice in her honor. That coastal city is still around today. Indeed, it's the second most populous city in its modern-day nation, with over a million residents in its metro area. By what name do we now know it? Had to start the African geography question. Okay, this, I mean, we're, we're seeing Egypt here. It's not, it's not really Egypt, then, is it? I don't think so. Something coastal? I've got nothing good. I'll just say... Uh, Adi Sababa, total guess. Please, someone else get this answer. <laughs> Decent guess, but not correct. Gavin? <clears throat> so I'm going to just, ah, man, I just feel like we got like a little bit more of a northern deal. I don't know why. I'm probably wrong. But you know what? I think this is coastal. I think it's pretty populous. I'm going with Tel Aviv. All right. Good guess. I think that's maybe a little more modern created city, but I'm not sure, actually. I don't I don't know that history of that area encyclopedically. So, yeah, good guess, but not correct. Ryan? So I think Cyrenaica is in North Africa. Like it's, I think it's in the Maghreb. And a notable second most, I think it's the second most populous city in Libya, would be Benghazi. So I'll go with that. Uh, yeah, the ancient city of Berenice is today known as Benghazi. 
Very good. Very nice. Wow. All right. Good stuff. Okay. So I believe at the end of that round, we have Gavin 0.0, Ryan 0.2, and Jason 0.2. And now hopefully you'll get the questions that are more hospitable to your interest because we're heading into the specialist rounds. So in round one and all successive rounds, each of you will get three. the previous one I call round zero. So this is round one. So in this round and all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories. The standard caveat, it's not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your knowledge of the category, may relate directly or obliquely to the category. To keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories until they become evident, though I think Jason kind of revealed his already. But anyway, before you can answer, your opponents will get to work together to try to steal the points from you. You only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. Sometimes to build suspense, I'll pass the question to you without telling you if your opponents got it wrong in those cases. The game theory thing to do is to assume they got it wrong, because if they got it right, you're not getting any points anyway. So um, this is, I think, something I introduced in Ryan's previous episode, and I've kept since then. Sometimes if a question is stolen from you, there will be a bonus question, which is worth half as many points as a steal. Basically, uh, it's there to give listeners a few more questions to enjoy and to give people who get stolen from a chance to show off knowledge. It usually won't swing the outcome of any games unless they're really close. And the bonuses are kind of quasi-randomly sprinkled in. They'll go with some stolen questions, not all of them. And they'll relate to the question, but won't always fit into the same category or be at the same level of difficulty. So think of it just as like an element of chance that's thrown in to the game. So these questions are not all that hard. So in this round, they'll be worth two points as a steal. One is a specialist. And now and for the rest of the game, the points will go to both stealers if a question is stolen, even if only one knew the answer. Okay, cool. Ready? Yes. Yep. So we will start with Ryan and Jason trying to steal from Gavin. Here's your question. Mike Soule's book, July 2nd, 1903, The Mysterious Death of Big Ed Delahanty, details how one of the best power hitters of baseball's pre-modern era was last seen crossing the International Railway Bridge before meeting his end via drowning near what landmark? This is Niagara Falls. You don't, you don't need the text of the question? Uh, no, I, I liked old baseball a lot as a kid and Adela Hanty getting drunk and walking over, trying to walk over Niagara Falls, or I guess drive over Niagara Falls and dying is a notable story. Yeah, he, he was thrown off of a train and so he tried to do it by foot and uh, uh, didn't. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, that is the correct answer. Woo. All right. And I will give a bonus. Uh, already, already we're using uh, a bonus for Gavin. So Mike Soul has written three books of baseball history in total, according to Wikipedia, including One Pitch Away about the 1986 postseason and The Pitch That Killed, which mentions the surnames of two men in its subtitle. Name either one. They're Ray Chapman and Carl Mays. Right, yeah. Chestnut for fans of old-time baseball, so everyone gets points on that. And we'll now go to Gavin and Jason trying to steal from Ryan. Let's take him down. <laughs> All right. A number of pointless debates and silly claims made in the quizzing world could be avoided with just a little knowledge of classical test theory, or CTT. So the fundamental equation of CTT is X equals T plus E, reflecting how it partitions an observed score, or X, into a true score, T, and what other component? I got no idea. Uh, I mean, so my first thought is, like, error component. That makes like, sense. I don't have anything better. If you have something better, let's no, go. I think, that's it. I think that's it. 
All right, we're going to go with an error component. All right, Ryan was keeping a poker face there, but is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Term. <laughs> hey, nice. Right, yeah. A lot of things become much clearer once you look, once you start to think in terms of partitioning things into true score and error, and then looking at the variants of, of error and so on. And I have a bonus for Ryan. This is going to be a bit harder. Which pioneer of factor analysis and namesake of the rank correlation coefficient coined the term G for the general factor underlying all measures of cognitive performance? Yeah, I think that's Spearman's row, but it's Spearman. Yes, so you're uh, demonstrating your high G factor by naming Charles <laughs> Spearman. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and once again, everyone gets some points on that. All right, now Ryan and Gavin to steal from Jason. The songwriting team of Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly wrote several hits for female acts in the 1980s, including The Pretender's I'll Stand By You, Divinal's I Touch Myself, and no less than five U.S. number one hits, Cindy Lauper's True Colors, The Bangles' Eternal Flame, Hearts' Alone, and one song apiece that went to number one for Madonna and Whitney Houston. Name either one of those two. Uh, <clears throat> you got ideas? Nope. I can okay. name a few Madonna and Whitney Houston songs, but I, have, I do not know this. It's not I Will Always Love You, because Dolly Parton yeah. wrote uh, yeah. other number ones as Whitney Houston have. Or Madonna, like, I don't know, was, I mean, Like a Virgin, who wrote that? I don't know. Yeah, Material Girl, maybe. Material Girl, maybe. Material possible. Girl seems seems more likely to be written by a different songwriting team. Okay, let's let's go with Material Girl. I'm, I'm, sure. I'm fine with that. I have no idea. You go with that, Ryan? Yep. All right, we're going with Material Girl. All right, Jason, what do you think? That's a really good guess. I was going to say, uh, I want to dance with somebody by Whitney Houston, just as a, seems seem like a, someone else's song, but I don't know. Okay, you, you slightly froze during that, but I think you heard you said you uh, wanted to go with I want to dance with somebody. Yeah. Yes, sorry. Yeah, so the uh, the two songs we were looking for here, the Madonna one was, in fact, Like a Virgin. Uh, uh. The Whitney Houston one was called So Emotional. Oh, man. Um, well, we were close. <laughs> yeah. Now, all right, Ryan and Jason to steal from Gavin. So this one may require pencil and paper, or pen and paper. So last season, Amanda Walker joked about how it would make no sense to have computational math questions on this podcast. Challenge <laughs> accepted. So let's say that you are a writer on a CBS police procedural circa 2000. There are five main crime solvers on your show. Let's call them Gil, Catherine, Warwick, Nick, and Sarah. And each episode features three of those characters handling an A plot and two handling a B plot. In addition, because your characters are scientists, you need a sixth character who is a police officer. Let's call him Brass, who can be attached to either the A plot, the B plot, or both. So how many distinct episodic configurations of this cast could you get through before you have to repeat yourself. So, okay. yeah, in each case, you know, the one that has three is, will just be called A and the one with two will be called B. So switching those labels won't change anything. There are no permutations like Nick and Warwick working together is the same as Warwick and Nick working together. But the options with brass are all distinct. So A, B, and both A and B are all distinct configurations. Okay, so I can get the C thing. 
I don't think I'm qualified to answer this question. <laughs> You've never seen CSI? I've seen CSI. The, 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 uh, I get your joke. It's good. <laughs> you have any thoughts, Ryan? Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to work through the math. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my thoughts are mostly trying to remember how you do this because I don't remember formulas. You don't remember formulas. What do I remember? I <laughs> <laughs> like a really big number. Oh, that's helpful. It's a big number, I'm sure. But okay, I think I came up with an answer, although I'm fairly certain it's wrong. You want to talk us through your process? So, yeah. So my thought is. If you're splitting into, like splitting into A and B casts, or A and B plots, you just have to worry about who's on the A plot, because once you know who's on the A plot, then there's not, you can't change up who's on the B plot. All of the crime solvers will be involved in one of them. So you just need to figure out how many permutations, or how many combinations there are for the A plot. And so I tried working it out, like, how many of them involve a how many of the, or like how many different combinations there are just by like counting it up i may have been wrong about that but i came up with 10 different ways to choose three characters for the a plot and then for the sixth character brass brass can either be sorry so there are 10 different ways of dividing a and b and then brass there are three different ways of hand, of putting brass there so then you multiply that 10 by 3 so you'd get 30 different distinct configurations. Yeah, I think my math on the 10 might be wrong, but other than that, I feel pretty confident. So yeah, you didn't uh, you you didn't remember the formula for the or the combinatorial yeah. formula, but um, yes. you also made I think made your work unnecessarily hard for you because when what you said originally was true, each p- grouping of three will uniquely determine a grouping of twos. But of course. It's also true that each grouping of two will uniquely determine a grouping of three. Oh, uh, yes. So that would have been much easier to count up. Like you didn't, yes. the formula would be five factorial over three factorial times two factorial, but you could also just have counted. So like Gil yes. will be paired with either Catherine, Warwick, Nick, or Sarah, Catherine with Warwick, Nick, or Sarah, Warwick with Nick or Sarah, and mm-hmm. then Nick and Sarah. So four plus three plus two plus one gives you 10, as you said. And then you multiply that by three. And you got 30. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I should have counted two. I should have done counting two instead of counting three, but it worked out. All right. Yeah. I've been, I've been wanting to ask a version of this question for about 20 years. So I'm glad I finally got the chance to. I would have appreciated a time limit on that. (laughs) Just just kidding. All right. Gavin and Jason to steal from Ryan. The Museum of Broken Relationships is located in Zagreb, the capital and most populous city of Croatia, and not in what second most populous Croatian city where it would arguably be more appropriate. Think <laughs> Gavin knows it. I, I, I definitely know it. That's a that's a great question. It's it's split. Oh uh, yeah, didn't even need to see the text. Very good. I'll give Ryan a bonus. So Split is famously home to a so-called palace built to be enjoyed during the retirement of which Roman emperor. It, it is also an actual palace. I mean, I, I guess it, it's somewhat ruined now, but it's Diocletian's palace. Yeah, it includes a residence and also a garrison around it. So the entire thing is called Diocletian's palace, even though the residence yep. is a part of it. But yes. Yep. Uh, all right. Next one, Ryan and Gavin to steal from Jason. The second episode of the British anthology TV series Urban Myths, which aired in 2017, 
featured Liam McDonald as a young Andre Rusimov and David Threlfall as which Nobel laureate? Uh, oh, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Andre Rusimov. That's Andre the Giant, right? Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. So that's uh, Samuel Beckett. Because there's the story about how Beckett would give Andre the Giant rides to school. Right. Okay. Perfect. Right. Yeah. So, so urban myths, we had dramatized stories about famous people that may or may not be true. In this case, I mean, Beckett did live in the same area where Andre was growing up and was known for giving local children rides to school in his car. But the, the sort of mythology that grew up around it about their supposedly having some kind of multiple conversations and a strong bond, that's probably not true. But yes, it is Samuel Beckett. Very good. Oh, I love that we had a question about Andre the Giant. Like when, when, when Burt Reynolds and the Celebrity Jeopardy guy, who is Andre the Giant? All right. And yeah, so knowing, knowing who is Andre the Giant helped you on that. Uh, Ryan and Jason now to steal from Gavin. Although the humanoid creatures who dwell north of the wall in Westeros are referred to on the TV show Game of Thrones as White Walkers, in the A Song of Ice and Fire books, they are generally referred to by what moniker or name or sobriquet, whatever you want to call them, that might be more familiar to fans of Lost or of filmmaker Alejandro Amenabar. So Lost has bad guys called the, uh, was it the Others? No, no, not the Others. There's a Dharma Initiative. There's, yeah, Others is my best guess. Do you have anything? I think it'll be familiar. I've not read A Song of Ice and Fire, but, but I think I'll have heard this before. I'm trying, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what this would be. I don't think it's the smoke monsters, so I think... Yeah, I don't think... Yeah, I've unfortunately not seen Lost. I don't know Amenabar. That's probably... It's probably some movie, like... It's not yeah. them. Oh, um, yeah. No, I... I oh, I, I, think, I think I'm think i right then. Because I think there is a horror movie called... The one I said, The Others, I think. Oh, The Others? Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a guess, but I think it's pretty... Yeah, that's, no, that seems good. So you locked in The Others, was it? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so I think also in episode five we discussed uh, Alejandro Manabar, but yes, his first, uh, very talented, or, uh, originally in Spanish language, but his very first English language movie was called The Others, and that's also a term from Lost and the term used in those books. All right, Gavin and Jason now to steal from Brian. Though you wouldn't think this man had anything in common with Ted Bundy, but they are linked by a coincidence involving focus on the family founder and prominent evangelical leader James Dobson. So Dobson, who famously conducted an interview with Bundy the day before his execution, was also a player in the casual game of pickup basketball that precipitated <laughs> that precipitated the sudden death at age 40 of what NBA legend whose missing left coronary artery was not diagnosed until it was too late. Uh, Pete, Pete Maravich, right? Pistol Pete? Yep. All right. And good. That's, what is it, for now, four steals in a row? Or mm -hmm. five? I don't know, a bunch. I think we've had four steals and one that nobody got, because it was the Madonna <laughs> in Houston where we both got it wrong. Yeah, I think actually every, yeah, every question except question three has been stolen so far. And now the last question of this round before the difficulty hopefully goes up a notch. This is for Ryan and Gavin, now to steal from Jason. In March 2011, a near-mint copy of 1962's Amazing Fantasy number 15 became, to date, the only Silver Age superhero comic book issue to sell for over a million dollars. What happened in Amazing Fantasy number 15 that made it so special? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, because I do not. Yeah, I do not. I only vaguely... 
no comic books. So, yeah, so I'm trying to think of, like, notable things that happen in comic books. Like, not, like, the first episode right. or, like, the first thing. My guess would be, like, Uncle Ben dying, unless that's a little early in a Spider-Man arc. But You know a lot more about okay. comic books than I do, and I'm guessing Jason knows like, even more than that. Yeah, so. I assume Jason knows this. Um, but that's, I, like, yeah. I don't have anything better than that, so I'm fine to go with it. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't even know what Amazing Fan. Like, I don't even know if Amazing Fantasy is like DC or Marvel. Yeah, me either. Okay. I'm just making something. <laughs> um, yeah, well, let's go with what you said. I got nothing. Okay. Yeah, let's say the death of Uncle Ben. All right. I'll keep quiet about that and pass it to Jason. It is the uh, debut and origin story of Spider Man. Yeah, okay, so, so I mean, the answer I had was that it was the, the first appearance of Spider-Man, but you know that that is the issue in which uh, Uncle Ben dies? He does die as part of the origin story, so it's like, I think it has to be accept, like acceptable. It's not like the big thing. It's not like, faint, you know, comic yeah. fans love Uncle Ben is dead forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's kind of, like, do we get credit for that? I can sort of see it going either way. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that's not why, yeah. I mean, that's not why it would, why it's famous, like. Right. I think uh, like the interaction with Spider-Man's the actual answer here. Yeah, it's like why is Game Six of the '86 World Series famous, and it's like Bob Stanley threw a wild pitch. Like he yeah. did throw a wild pitch, but like that's not what everyone remembers. Yeah. Let me. Uh, They're technically correct, but yeah, it's weird. Okay, so oh, I don't think so. First it didn't ask like what happened. It's like what made it special. I mean, I guess like it is part of the origin story, but. Okay, so according to Wikipedia, Uncle Ben first appeared in Amazing Fantasy number 15 and was killed in the same issue. So I will give credit to Hein and Gavin for that. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure it happened in the same issue. It wasn't, like, uh, delayed or anything like that. And so it looks like an extremely steel-heavy first round. The scores I have are Gavin 11.0, Ryan 12.2, Jason 12.2. So the tiebreaker not breaking that tie at all. <laughs> All right, so now we'll go into the only somewhat hard round. The questions are now with four points as a steal and three points as a specialist, two points as a bonus. And we'll begin with Ryan and Jason trying to steal from Gavin. And so once again, we go back to computational math. This time, I'm going to use a random number generator right now to pick a random integer between 50 and 100. Let's call that N. Your job is to tell me how many interior diagonals a convex polygon with n sides would have in this context an interior diagonals any line segment connecting two vertices that's not an edge and i will pick the number now all right well the number it spat out was 99 all right so there's a formula for this i'm trying to draw it out and drive the formula that might take some time <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's an algebraic way of doing this um i guess that's just combinations Ugh. I don't know. Jason, do you have any ideas here? I have no otherwise, insight. I got a lot of formula right yeah. away. So yeah. Whatever right, you got other, yeah, yeah, I'll just guess something. That would seem to make sense. Yeah, it's it's again combinations. I don't have the like, combinations memorized. So I'll just say, I don't know, 195. All right. Gavin? So I could be approaching this wrong, but what I think we've got going on here is like every little fella can be connected to like interior diagonal with everything that's not itself 
or the ones adjacent to it, but it can go to all the others. And each of those like has sort of a two-way connection there. So I think it's just like n times n minus 3 over 2. And for 99, that'd be 99 times 96 over 2, which is 4,700. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. I did not say my answer yet because I am now being utterly, incredibly paranoid. That is 4,752. That's what I'm going with. All right. Yeah. So basically, yeah, the formula, you can either, you know, get to it deductively or inductively. Inductively, you could draw out like a square, a pentagon, a hexagon. And since it's quadratic, you can kind of induct from that. Or deductively, you can do it exactly the way that uh, Gavin did, right? Each, each vertex will go to all but three of the other vertices, everything except itself and the two next to it. So n times n minus three. And then since you're double counting each endpoint, divide by two. And so you will end up with for n equals 99, 4,752. Very good. Very impressive. Now, Gavin and Jason to try and steal from Ryan. Down. So it may seem like there's a very high mathematical thinking content on this episode, which is somewhat coincidental, but previous episodes have featured virtually none. So I like the balance. <laughs> it's nice to have variety. All right. So Gavin and Jason now to steal from Ryan. Sometimes even trained psychologists fall prey to statistical fallacies. I was having a conversation once at the SPSP, Society of Personality and Social Psychology annual conference, with a woman who complained that men are either funny or good-looking, but not both. So I hesitated briefly out of fear of mansplaining, but I figured you, technically you can't mansplain to somebody something they don't know. So I eventually pointed out that she was overlooking Berkson's paradox. So now it's your turn to try to mansplain to me. Why, in plain English, would Berkson's paradox cause this woman to think that there is a negative correlation between humor and physical attractiveness among men when those two constructs might actually be uncorrelated or even positively correlated within the general population? And this should go without saying, but I'm just using this as a kind of acute example to illustrate a phenomenon which is not gendered in any way. <laughs> uh, well, shoot, I guess I actually don't know which one I'd rather be. Well. I'm not attracted to somebody. I'm humorous, so I prefer the good-looking, I think, but yeah. <laughs> okay, so what's going on here? Berkson's paradox, a negative correlation between humor... This is also sort of a general thing, right? Like, ah, oh, jeez. I don't know, this isn't like a... Berkson's paradox isn't the same as confirmation bias, though. So, like, I guess I just have no idea what's going on in this question. Do you have any idea? No. It, it sounds like the only answer is, like, personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> she, she met some people that were different, and now she thinks this way. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, don't, I have no clever answer here. I have no idea. I mean, there's probably so. Here's the thought I have, which is that you can imagine a world in which people expect this to be true, and therefore men who are not physically attractive try to become funny in order to compensate for it. That's how she came to think that. Or the person? I don't, no, I don't know. I like it might end up like somehow manifesting itself because people think it. But that's not really a paradox. No, I, that's where you're talk, teaching someone something. I don't know. Uh, oh, God. I mean, that's the best guess we're going right. to get. <laughs> I think the best guess we have is that for this particular example, unattractive men perceiving a like bias against them might work harder to be funny while attractive men would not need to try as hard to be funny and therefore would be less funny. <laughs> that's what we got. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we're going. Yeah, it can be hard to translate between these abstract concepts and 
more plain language. But yeah, I think you know what you're saying wouldn't really explain sort of a illusory perception, right? Because that's that's kind of what we're looking at here. So uh, I don't think I can accept that. That's fine. I wouldn't have you right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have no idea what Bergson's paradox is, but the best thing I can come up with is that for like features of a population that are sufficiently rare, like it it can be very hard to judge their relative frequency relative to other rare things. So my guess is that it's just that you find so few funny or attractive people that it's hard to judge their relative frequencies and their correlations. So that is definitely a phenomenon that occurs, but that's yeah not what Brookson's paradox is. In some ways, it's maybe kind of an inverse of it, not strictly speaking, but kind of broadly speaking. But basically, I mean, Brookson's paradox, broadly speaking, it has to do with selection bias, right? So basically, with any two traits you're looking at, if your sample, if there's some kind of additive combination of those traits that determines whether someone ends up in your sample, then those traits will look negatively correlated within your sample, regardless of what the actual correlation is. One way to think about this is that, you know, if you kind of dichotomize traits as like low versus high, you'll have four possible combinations, high, high, low, low, high, low, low, high. And if the traits random or uncorrelated, you expect those to be distributed in all four quadrants. But if you only talk to people who are in either high, low, low, high, or high, high, then you'll miss everyone who's in low, low, which is a chunk of the population where there's a positive correlation. So if you throw out that positive correlation, what you're left with will be a negative correlation. Mm. Yeah. So in this case, basically, women rarely interact with men who lack both humor and looks. So they don't really notice that part of the population where they're positively correlated in a negative sense. Yeah. I'm using two different <laughs> two different meanings of positive and negative here, obviously, valence versus uh, correlation. But let's go to now Ryan and Gavin trying to steal from Jason. A very different question, not involving math at all. The 2020 low-budget direct-to-video-on-demand action thriller Money Plane, directed by Andrew Lawrence and featuring cameos from his brothers Joey and Matthew Lawrence, stars a thespian named Adam Copeland, who is better known to fans of WWE by what moniker? And no, you can't use your web browser to look this up. Okay, I read an article on The Ringer, like, like an oral history of this movie. Also, like, a uh, web browser is probably uh, a hint. Uh, yes. um, do, you, do you know this, by the way? I have no idea, um, um, other than web browser is almost certainly a hint. Yeah, I know that I've... Can you just, like, name some WWE people? Um, um, so I'm trying... Like, none of the WWE people I know have web browser-related names. Sure. But... Yeah, so something like Internet Explorer, oh, Edge, uh, Firefox, um, probably not Chrome or Google. Wait, or it like, might Edge. Yeah. Isn't Edge a WWE person? Possibly. Sounds Think, like it could be. That feels like it might be right, actually. It's not like a Spider-Man thing. God, I read an article about this like three weeks ago. I think we have to go with Edge because I cannot think of anything. I okay. can't think of better than that. Yeah. Yeah, we're going with Edge. All right, locked in Edge. Jason, is that right? That is 100% right. I am so angry right now. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty lucky. <laughs> yes. I, I do not think I would have gotten it if my computer did not automatically open Microsoft Edge to download Skype. And I went to download <laughs> Skype for this meeting. 
<laughs> yeah, once you said Edge, it like rang a bell in the article. So there you go. All right, yeah, that's good teamwork, right? Each of you had partial knowledge that you combined to get yeah. there. I think we did that before with Andre the Giant and Samuel yeah. Beckett, too. These wrestling ones, neither neither <laughs> anything, but we're just piecing it together. All right. All right, now Ryan and Jason to try and steal from Gavin. So what is the full name of the A Song of Ice and Fire character who became known as Lady Stoneheart following her resurrection? Who died early to come back as a... I have no idea. Yeah, I, I really don't know. Yeah, because there's a lot of resurrected. I can't think of any ladies. Lady Stoneheart. So these are people resurrected by... Yeah, sorry. I've, I've not seen... Or no, I, I watched this. the last season, so I'm, I'm, I'm all kinds of confused about this show and books. We could, get, we could guess a female character's name, at least. Yeah. Do we have one of those? Uh, I don't know, like Marjorie Terrell? There you go. Okay. That's what we're going with. Yeah. That is a female character who dies, so be a good guess. Um, <laughs> Kevin? So, I, I think, I mean, I think I know this. I, I'm not entirely sure what you mean by full name, so I'm going to say what I think, and I hope that if it's not specific enough, you'll let me say more specific. But uh, she didn't show up in the show, because this... Well, I mean, she did, but Lady Stoneheart didn't. This is Catelyn Tully Stark. Okay, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, so, so full name, generally known by her married name, although if you'd said her unmarried name, I would have accepted that too. You put both of them together, but yeah, that's... Catelyn Stark, nay, Catelyn Tully... Yeah, any of those are acceptable. Good job. Cold beans. On the show, I think it's probably enough time has passed now that it, we're out of spoiler territory. But yes, on the show, she does die the same way she does in the books. But unlike in the books, she does not return. All right. Now, Gavin and Jason trying to steal from Ryan. Can't have an episode of Recreational Thinking without some Portland-related content. So here's the question. Led by the great Bill Walton, in what year did the Trailblazers garner their to-date only NBA championship. You said year, right? Yeah, year. 1977. You're locking in that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. And um, yeah, Ryan gave a little nod. I think acknowledging that's correct. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see. I'll, uh, I'll make this a little uh, harder. All right. So let's let's make this a this bonus for Ryan a little bit harder than what I had. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So basically, um, in what year did the Trailblazers most recently become the only NBA franchise in the Pacific Northwest following the relocation of two other franchises from that geographical area. Oh, oh, yeah, that would be the, um, that would be that. So let me just get this exactly right, because I recently read Boomtown, which is a book about the history of Oklahoma City and the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I believe the Thunder moved to Oklahoma. That's the tricky thing. So the Thunder draft Kevin Durant in the 2000, or, or the Sonics draft Kevin Durant in the 2007 draft. He plays a year in Seattle, and then they moved to Oklahoma City starting in 2008. So I'll say 2008. All right. Yeah, according to my source, that is correct. So Nicely done. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. I think the original question I had would have been just way too easy for you. <laughs> what was it? Well, no, you don't have to ask it, but... Uh... I think it was just what were the what were the cities that the two teams relocated to? Uh, it did take me a sec to remember the Vancouver Grizzlies. Yeah. You remember that Durant played one year in Seattle and Westbrook played zero. Yeah. Yeah, because 
Durant and Nick Collison were the longest tenured Sonics. All right, now Ryan and Gavin to steal from Jason. So not to be confused with John Steed and Emma Peel, RIP Dame Diana, the Avengers superhero team debuted in The Avengers number one and originally consisted of five members. Of those original five members, who was the only woman? You can give either her full name or the name of her superhero alter ego. Hmm. All right, so who's who are female Avengers? Uh, there's, what, going from the movies, there's, like, Black Widow. Yeah. Um, what's the, is there a bee-related one? Uh, the Wasp. The Wasp, yeah. Wonder Woman's not the Avenger, right? No. Wonder Wonder Woman's DC. Yep. Okay, so we got Black Widow, we got the Wasp. Are the Fantastic Four part of the Avengers? No. No, they're not. Okay. I'm just a clown. Um, Guardians um, of the Galaxy have any major women? So, is, is the beginning of the question a clue? Like, I don't know who John Steed or Emma Peel are, but... Well, hold on. Diana Rigg. Diana Rigg, didn't she play Black Widow? Okay. Yeah. Uh, hang on. I, I don't um, know, but... She definitely... I mean, Diana Rigg, who played Olena Tyrell in Game of Thrones, definitely played an Avenger. And I think it was Black Widow, but I want to... It wasn't the Wasp, and can we think of any others? Nope. We're going with Black Widow. Are you going with Black Widow? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely the one who's most famous thanks to the movies, but it's not the correct answer here, so I'll pass it to Jason. That is Janet Van Dyne, a.k.a. The Wasp. It was The Wasp, no oh, way! Well. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure where you were, I mean, the, um, yeah, John Steed and Diane Rigg are, of course, famously the Avengers from the TV series, which, in England, at least, is what the Avengers, many people will think of. Also, some, well, at least for me, in the U.S. as well, but um, that's why the first Avengers movie had to be titled Avengers Assemble in the U.K. Yeah, so that wasn't really a, a hint at all. I'm not sure what thread you were following, but uh, it was illusory. Yes, it is uh, The Wasp or Janet Van Dyne. <laughs> Oh, man, that's funny. But it did kind of tie back to Game of Thrones, though, because she did play Elena Tyrell. Ryan and Jason now to steal from Gavin. In 1944 and 45, Detroit Tigers pitcher Hal Neuhauser left his mark with back-to-back AL MVP awards. I think still the only pitcher to to win that award in back-to-back years. In 1945, he earned the pitching triple crown, led the Tigers to victory in the World Series. He wound up his playing career with the Cleveland Indians, but his involvement with Major League Baseball as a professional scout continued into his 70s. He finally retired in anger in 1992, after the Houston Astros ignored his recommendation to draft what then obscure prospect. Neuhauser is said to have told the Astros organization, no one is worth $1 million as a signing bonus, but if one kid is worth that, it's this kid. Mm. Do you have any good ideas here? So, obviously early 90s baseball prospect it's going to be a top draft pick because they wanted a million dollars as a signing bonus yeah uh, so i thought of chipper jones right away because that was around when he was drafted i don't know if he's that big of a player then though yeah my first thought was ken griffey but he's earlier yeah that was like late 80s like 89 yeah, yeah. <sighs> junior's not that i have a pick is a rod up there 
Yeah, that that's uh I want to say that's around when A Rob would have been drafted. It might be a little too early for A Rob. Yeah. I think that's a better um, chipper maybe, but I don't know. Oh I guess it does say obscure prospect. Maybe uh, have got, got, gotten big later or something, right? Although, yeah, so it is weird boring. that it would be It says that obscure. I said that's that obscure. Yeah. But I'm I guess I'm confused with like the talking about one million dollar signing bonus and then but also an obscure prospect. So, I mean, yeah. Who hasn't yet been drafted, I think, is by definition obscure. Because it'd be like, like <laughs> a, high school, a high school or a college player, and there yeah. aren't any famous high school or college baseball players. Yeah, yeah, fair. Depends. Um, okay. So, yeah, I don't really, I don't know enough to. I think it's uh, A Rod, unless you have a better guess. Yeah, that seems good for me. All right. Our final answer is Alex Rodriguez. All right, I'll pass it over to Gavin. Oh, this is a tricky one. A-Rod could be right. I don't think it's A-Rod because I think he was only 16 then. And I think he might have even, and I think, I don't know, I feel like he was drafted pretty early. I'm pretty sure it's not Chipper Jones because Chipper Jones went first overall. And I sort of disagree that there's, that every prospect is obscure. Like people knew who Bryce Harper was. One thought is Mike Piazza, who was drafted by the Dodgers as a favor to Tommy Lasorda's friend. But I don't think anybody else even had him on their radar. I don't like this answer, nor do I like this person, but feels right somehow. So while I think, I mean, if they're right with A-Rod, more power to him, I'm going with Derek Jeter. Right. Very good guess. And what makes it a good guess is that it's correct. I definitely thought Jeter was earlier, but that makes sense. I guess I had that in my brain somewhere. (laughs) I don't know how. There's always stories about Derek Jeter, how great he is. No matter what. Ah, can't stand the guy. All right. We're kind of zipping through these, but let's go to Gavin and Jason now, trying to steal from Ryan. What present-day national capital was known as Titograd from 1946 to 1992? Changing three letters in the name of this city will give you the prison beneath Stonehenge, where the 11th Doctor was imprisoned during the season finale of Matt Smith's first series of Doctor Who. Uh, okay. Well, first of all, do we know anything about Doctor Who? Does that is that going to help us at all? Uh, I don't think so, unless you can defraud something from England or Stonehenge or something, but no, other than that, no. So, no, never mind. Okay, so Titograd, I mean, obviously it's in the former Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got, it's not Sarajevo, because Sarajevo hosted the Olympics during this time as Sarajevo. Right. I, I mean, I think Belgrade is most likely, and, like, maybe there's, like, some prison that sounds sort of like that. Yeah, I could see making a pun out of that name, like, Belglad or something. I don't yeah, know. Belglad or something. Or even, like, Marg, I don't know. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not, well, I don't know, let's just also think, like, Skopje is just seems like a goony thing. There's no way a prison is called anything close to Ljubljana. I'm, like... 70% confident it's Belgrade? That's more than anything I can give you. So let's go with that. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Hang on. What about Podgorica or Pristina? Oh, now I'm in my head. Let's, let's just go with Belgrade. Let's just go yeah. with Belgrade. And we'll, all the we're, going with, <laughs> we're going with Belgrade. All right. Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm generally use a sporkle definition of, of nation. So once you had it narrowed down to former Yugoslavia, it's basically a one in seven shot, even with no knowledge. But, uh, Ryan? Um, yeah, I don't actually think that's Belgrade because I think I've like see I'm pretty sure I've 
seen stuff from the from the Yugoslav time period that referred to it as Belgrade or Beograd. So I'm trying to think of which other one it might be, because yeah, I mean, this is pretty generic, and I don't know the Doctor Who thing. I'll just go with Scopia. All right, yeah. So the prison in Doctor Who, I think so that yeah, that episode, which was the first season finale that uh, I think Stephen Moffat handled on the show, was called the Pandorica Opens. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> I pronounced that city because of that. I pronounced that city uh, Podgorica, and then my my previous podcast that I had back in Austin, which was film related, uh, unrelated to this. But one of my co-hosts was of I think Serbian descent, and he was like, uh, I'm pretty sure it's more like Podgorica or something like that. Ah, you know. We probably should have known that Belgrade would have still been Belgrade. Ah, but what are you going to do? Yeah, that that was the national capital of Yugoslavia. So when we were kids, if you're at least somewhere around the same age as me, when you were a kid and learned the world capitals, you would have learned it as Belgrade. But yeah. All right. And now we're at the final question of the only somewhat hard round. So Ryan and Gavin to steal from Jason. Published under the nom de plume Jeffrey Holmes, Daniel Mannering's novel Build My Gallows High was adapted into the 1947 noir classic Out of the Past and again into a 1984 film with what title? This film is remembered today pretty much only for its title song, which peaked at number one on the U.S. charts and number two on the U.K. charts. The song was also nominated for an Oscar, but at the ceremony it was infamously performed not by its original artist but by noted dancer Anne Reinking, lip-syncing badly to her own vocal track. The resulting shambles topped Gold Derby's list of the worst musical moments in Oscar ceremony history. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do we What do we got here? Uh, pretty much nothing. Yeah. Build my gallows high out of the past. Like what? Ti- what movie title song? Like I'm, I'm trying to think of movie title songs that like were on the charts. It's not Chariots of Fire. It's not Top Gun. Although it would be hilarious if it was Top Gun. <laughs> uh, it's not. Title song. Yeah, I really got absolutely nothing. Yeah. I don't know any noir. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I don't know. I have not seen any uh, Oscar ceremonies from the 80s, so. Yeah, right. 1984. Yeah, I have absolutely nothing. Yeah. Uh, Top Gun. That's our Top answer. Go <laughs> with Top Gun. Yes, you all remember the famous title song from Top Gun, Top yes. Gun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, uh, Jason. Uh, I don't. I mean, my guess is probably a little better than Top Gun, but not by a lot. Uh, you know, uh, I know there was a bad '80s remake of Breathless, so I'm just gonna say Breathless to have an answer, because otherwise I'll just be sitting here all day. You know. You know. Uh, yeah. So this song was a number one hit for Phil Collins. It was called Against All Odds. I think okay. the full title song was something I like I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> the movie was called Against All Odds. The full title of the song was something like Against All Odds, parentheses, take a look at me now. Oh, that is a famous song. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So after a long stretch of no or very few blanks, we ended that round on two blanks. But we have scores of 28.0 for Gavin, Ryan 18.2, Jason 19.2. So if this trend keeps up, we won't need the tiebreaker. Uh, but we'll find out if it will, because the questions now will become much harder, or at least they're supposed to. Sometimes the calibration is off a little. But in the super hard round, the questions will be worth six points as a steal, five points as a specialist, three points as a bonus. And we'll begin with Ryan and Jason trying to steal from Gavin. All right. 
New York Yankees backup catcher Ralph Hook, H-O-U-K, not sure how that's pronounced, went on to an extended career as a manager once his playing days were over, but he only played in 91 Major League Baseball games. Incredibly, this allowed him to collect how many World Series rings as a player. In other words, how many World Series winning squads was he a member of as a player? So I'm thinking minimum two. Whereabouts? Yeah, it's got to be more than two. So 50s, three seems like a lot. I mean, especially for that many games, but four maybe? Yeah, four four seems about right. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, but, I mean, as a backup catcher, like, you can play. Like, like never. 15, 15 games as a season as a backup catcher seems about right, honestly. Yeah. They were still dominant enough then, I guess. So that's that's good enough, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's between four or five. Pick which number you like better, because I think I think you have a little better knowledge. Yeah, I mean, this is just guessing. Like, I've I've heard of him. I know, I know of him as a manager. I have no idea. Like, let's his say playing four. career. Let's okay, say. we'll say four. All right, locked in four. Gavin. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I know when Ralph how or Hoke. I actually don't know how to pronounce it either. I know when he managed. Although, how old was he when he managed? I don't know. But since he managed like those like sixties teams. I'm since you guys already picked four, which seems reasonable. I'm just gonna go with the guess that he was on all five of the 49 through 53 teams uh, and say five. Right. So yeah, his career as a player extended from 1947 to 1954. Uh, oh, one six, didn't he? Which was eight seasons. So he was in fact on all five of those uh, consecutive winning teams, but he was also on the 14 oh. team, which would make it six. Wow. Uh, uh, nice work if you can get it. Yeah, I guess I was right. Fifteen a year. Uh, yeah, it was no, it was. I mean, I figured it was forty-nine through fifty-three, and it was like flipping a coin whether forty-seven was included. I said no, but it was. Yeah, and if he'd waited around until fifty-six, he would have gotten another one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now Gavin and Jason to steal from Ryan. There are nine players in NBA history with seven or more championships to their name. Of those, eight were members of the Boston Celtics during the Red Auerbach-slash-Bill Russell-led Celtics dynasty of the late 50s and 60s. Who is the ninth? His seven rings were collected with three different franchises. Three. Um, okay, so I think it's Robert Ory, but before we say that, let's think about it. Um, three Pete, three Rockets, and a Spurs, or two Spurs, right? Wait, so 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 that'd be Lakers three peat two Rockets and two Spurs. Yeah, I, I think I think that works out. Yeah, I think that works. Yeah, so yeah, well let's go with him. All right, Robert Ory. Yeah. Yeah, I mean your um, your your deduction was exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Last time Ryan was on, he was uh, disappointed. His basketball questions were stolen by a non-sports fan, but uh, now he's on here apparently with two yeah. sports fans. So. <laughs> Another collision of expertise, but I'll, I'll give you a bonus. So after winning two championships with the Rockets, Robert Ory was one of four players traded by the Rockets in order to acquire what man who desperately wanted to achieve a championship before the end of his NBA career? Clyde Drexler. Oh, oh yeah, I screwed that up. Yeah, the one, oh. yeah, Clyde Drexler was on the Trailblazer, so he would also yeah. have not. Well, no, he, he went to the Rockets. He, he was one of the other Rockets mid-2000s or mid-90s acquisitions. So, yeah. yeah, this would have been Barkley, I guess. Right. 
The one who famously never won the NBA championship was Charles Barkley. I mean, Drexler also famously never won. Yeah. <laughs> famously. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was for our no, six six points for Gavin and Jason. Um, all right. Ryan and Gavin to steal from Jason. Many WWF storylines of the 1980s were driven by various wrestlers lusting after the manager of Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> this wrestling personality was in real life married to Savage until 1992. Following their divorce, she disappeared from the spotlight only to reemerge as part of WCW from 1996 to 2000. Throughout her career, she was referred to by what common female first name? Uh, yeah, so I know this because I have read many, 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 many Bill Simmons columns over the years, and so I feel confident in saying that her name was Miss Elizabeth. All right. Is that correct, Jason? That is very much correct. I'm very angry. <laughs> <laughs> Another expertise collision here, but I'll give you a bonus also. So at the time of her 2003 death, Miss Elizabeth... As I said, her marriage to Randy Savage was long over by that point. But at the time of her 2003 death, she was in a, let's call it, troubled relationship with which professional wrestler? That's the total package, Lex Luger! <laughs> yes. Among, among his many infractions, he was at one point pulled over while carrying a Luger. So true to his name. <laughs> that was really not the worst thing he did, though. All right, so... Jason that we've been stealing his wrestling questions with ridiculous luck. I've watched so much wrestling. You've done nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now Ryan Jason is still trying to steal from Gavin. So A Song of Ice and Fire is often considered the most successful exemplar of the subgenre of fantasy fiction, known by what eight-letter adjective derived from the tagline of Warhammer 40,000? I don't know Warhammer at all. I've heard of it before, but yeah, same. It must be something fantasy or yeah, it's not high fantasy. Dragonlance. <laughs> Warhammer is a like a combat RPG with fantastical elements. I think or something. I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what adjectives would go there. What are subsections of fantasy? There's like oh, it could be like medieval. Is that that's eight? Yeah, I think right. That's yeah. eight. That's kind of like that does kind of match up with like what a song of ice and fire is like. Yeah, I don't or, know. If... I think yeah, <clears throat> it's good. Let's go with that. Sure. Let's go with medieval. All right. Yeah, that is the right length, although it's yeah not really a neologism. I'll uh, pass this to Gavin. So if I'm right, I kind of disagree with this, and if I'm wrong, then I'm just a dillweed. So my guess is grimdark. Well, Dillweed also has eight letters. So. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the subgenre here, a term that was coined from a description of Warhammer, it's called Grimdark. Yeah, see, I don't think A Song of Ice and Fire is Grimdark. The show, the, the, never mind, I don't want to get into this. That's <laughs> incredibly annoying. Right, but even if you're not familiar with what Grimdark means, you can, I think most people can deduce it, basically, from the, from the word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, moving through these questions really quickly. All right, uh, Gavin and Jason, now to steal from Ryan. So, I never get tired of the story of George Danzig, who, while a doctoral student at Berkeley in the 1930s, one day arrived to his seminar late and copied down two problems from the board, assuming they were homework. He tossed the solutions on the desk of his advisor, only to be awoken the next morning by furious pounding on the door from that advisor. 
who informed him of those problems were actually on the board as examples of famous unsolved problems in the field of statistics, and Danzig had just solved them. So here's your job. Name that Polish-born advisor, notable in his own right for introducing the concept of confidence intervals and for pioneering an influential approach to hypothesis testing in collaboration with Egon Pearson. Oh, and don't confuse him with an active Brazilian footballer. That means soccer player, if that wasn't obvious. The only chance is the footballer one, but I don't know anyone who's active right now. Um, so I was all excited to say Kolmogorov, and then I was like, well, I can't think of any active Brazilian footballers whose names sound like Kolmogorov. Um, Pearson, Pe- so Pearson's one of those tests fellas. Yeah, Pearson's definitely one of those testing fellas. And who are the other types of fellas? Um, um, okay, so what does what active Brazilian footballers name are? Uh, anybody sound like Neymar here? Confidence intervals. Who introduced confidence intervals? Um, God, if any, the, the, the soccer question is making me more confused, not less. Um, you should go with your first guess, because it might sound like someone. They import players and stuff, you know? I don't know. Maybe it sounds like someone, and I really do... Do you have anything better? Because if not, I'm going to go with this guy that I think is, like, related to this stuff. No, I don't. I don't follow the current... Brazilian team, so I don't have any knowledge. So I don't. I don't do this math I'm, stuff. I'm ten years back too, so I'm just gonna hope that it sounds like someone's name. And let's go with Kolmogorov. All right. Yeah. I just googled now. Kolmogorov was born in Russia, as you might deduce from the name, and it looks like spent his entire life in the Soviet Union. So yeah, that's a Sorry. decent guess, but not correct, Ryan. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean. I, I know very little classical statistics, so I'm not going to get this from the confidence intervals thing. And I don't remember the story well enough to remember his advisor's name. So time to pick a active Brazilian footballer and try and make it Polish. Um, so I'll say Koslowski. All right, yeah. So this man, his name was Jerzy Neyman. Uh, oh, right, yeah, Neyman, yeah. Oh, man, that's funny. I have heard his name before. Yeah, yeah, between the soccer player hint and, you know, even if you'd heard of the name, hopefully, you know, might have triggered something, but, uh, oh, well. All right, next question, now Ryan and Gavin, now to steal from Jason. The 1980s contained three songs with lyrics mostly or entirely in a non-English language that peaked at number one or number two on the U.S. charts. Which was the only one of those songs that was not primarily in German? Okay, so what are the songs, first of all? Yeah, um, these were, there was the O'Brien's quit, Franklin quiz recently that had all of these, but of course they've gone in one year and out the other. Yeah. Um, is it like Mr. Roboto? Uh, or, well, I guess I don't know if that's... I mean, uh, I thought that that was, I thought Mr. Roboto was mostly in English. Like, obviously, yeah, no more... Okay. But like, you're wondering who I am. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a thing where it, it was in the quiz because it had lyrics. Oh, okay. Not English, but this is looking for um, mostly. I mean, 99 Luftballons is one of the German yeah. ones, presumably. Oh, hang on. Um, Never, well, when did, La Bamba's older than this, right? Yeah, La Bamba's older. Okay. Uh, Is Blue in this? Like, what, I'm Blue, da ba dee da ba da yeah. No, that yeah. was later. That's when I was in Mexico and I was 11. That's like 2000. Okay. Uh, my Sherry Amour, that, that's not in French, right? That's oh, yeah. just Stevie Wonder singing in English. Yeah. 
Man, uh, this is a good question. I feel like it's got to be something in Spanish that we're not thinking of, right? Yeah. But Macarena's later than this. Yeah. Uh, like Felix Navidad never chart, wouldn't chart. You sure? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. think so. Charts are weird. I think if we, if, I don't know what the time limit is here. I think if we don't come up with anything better. I think we go with Feliz Navidad. But okay. um, yeah, I don't think I have anything yeah. better. I'm not good on what charted. What about like No Je No Regret Uh, I think that's from. I mean, La Vie en Rose. Yeah, I'm trying to think when that was. I mean, could be it could have charted in the 80s, I guess. Do you want to do La Vie en Rose, Feliz Navidad, or something we haven't thought of yet? Well, I I don't know. Regret that. And well, yeah, the cover could have charted. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, up to you. I I, I want to go with Le'Veon Rose, and if it's Feliz Navidad, you can come here and beat me up. <laughs> you, you go with that? Yep. All right, we'll go with Le'Veon Rose. All right, yeah. With regard to time, actually, I mean, like, this was, you know, supposed to be a three-hour session, and we started based on time. So, I mean, if you wanted to take 20 minutes on each of the next questions, we'd still finish before, ta- before time. So don't, don't worry about time. With regard to... Uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure if you, you realize this, but yeah, No, Jeanne, Regret, Rien, and La Vie en Rose are actually two separate songs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oops. I knew they were separate, but because No, no Jeanne, Regret, Rien, like, the famous version of that is, like, late 50s. But I thought La Vie en Rose might have gotten popular, might have been popular in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, you got to guess something. Can't fault you for that. But, uh, Jason? I'm going to take a shot in the dark, a uh, little assist from my friends here. They released the movie La Bamba with Blue Diamond Phillips, so I'm going to say La Bamba. Right. So, I mean, you were right that the original version of La Bamba that, you know, was a hit for uh, Richie Valens was in the 50s because he famously died in 1959. But there was a biopic of him released in the 80s. The song was covered by Los Lobos. Oh, man. It did, in fact, reach number one in that cover. We even said it. Wow. Yeah, if you listen to this podcast, it's very common for people to say the correct answer while deliberating and then move away from it. Sometimes they'll say it and then move away from it, then come back to it. Sometimes they will start by saying it, move away from it, come back to it, be about to say it, and then change at the very last second. All right. And there's, yeah, just one cycle of questions remaining, one specialist question and two chances to steal for everyone. So this next one, again, this one will almost certainly require a pen and paper. (laughs) So back to my random number generator. I'm going to use it to pick a random integer between 25 and 50. Again, call it N. Your job is to tell me the measure in degrees to the nearest whole number of each interior angle of a regular N-gon. In other words, a regular polygon with N sides and N angles. Let's see what it gives me. 48. Both of those were toward the high end of the range, which I wouldn't expect, but I guess random numbers, they really are random. They don't... Mm-hmm. Pseudo-random numbers would come from like the middle of the range, but yeah, I have no control over the random one, so it's 48 is N. Okay, so the interior angles of a regular triangle, which has three sides, are 60. And the interior angles of a of a square, which has four sides, are 90. And I think it's 10, it's like 120 or 108 for five. So I think it's, I think the formula would be, it's 180 times n minus 2 over m. So for 48, it's 
doing this math. Um, and then four carry six, so team forty times or eighty, so six two four zero. Oh, oh wait, wait, I'm doing this wrong. Oh, I see what I did wrong there. Nine hundred divided by ten four. So I have 5,880 divided by 48, which, uh, does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Let's see. I said said nearest before in the question. I mean, since you're doing it long division, let's just say within one degree. Okay. I guess I can just figure this out. So you have 4,800, then you add, um, that's, uh, 80... 960, that's 20. This is the thrilling art of watching someone make sure their math is right. It's not even watching, because this is going to be a podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you were <laughs> someone make sure their you math is right. Oh, okay. I mean, I think this actually comes out exactly if I'm doing my math right. Let me just double check. Your math is better than mine. I got lost the first interval. Let me just double check this, actually. Oh, wait, no, that's wrong. Oh, I see what it is. Wait, what? Okay. Okay. I think one more calculation will be there. So, okay. I think I, well, God. Yeah, one more calculation. Okay. I think it's, um, I think it's like 122 degrees. All right. You've gone 122. Without saying anything, I will pass it to Gavin. Uh, so I've, I've checked my answer a couple times. Just, you know. And I feel fairly confident in saying that the answer is 172.5. Right. Yeah. So when I when I originally wrote, I had no idea what n would be. So I was just like, yeah, to the nearest whole number degree. It didn't even occur to me. What if it's a 0.5? And then I was like, oh yeah. So anyway, within yeah. within one degree. So you know, in this case, it had actually the numbers you know worked out because 48 is a multiple of 12. So it it worked out exactly to a, a half degree. So. so you go. You get 180 times 46 is 8,280 divided by 48 is 172.5. Uh, I, yeah, I just did my initial calculation wrong. That's where I often. So one thing you could have done, Ryan, to check yourself right is you know that. So as n gets arbitrarily large, and n gone will approach a circle, which is 360. Yeah. So the sum of the exterior angles is always going to be 360. 360 yeah. divided by 48, it's 7.5, but you could have told it's going to be less than 10 obviously so the yeah. answer has to be more than 170 oh that's a clever way of doing it i didn't oh, think uh-huh. yeah yeah once you've got to 7.5 just 180 minus 7.5 is 172.5 whichever way you do it it algebraically they're equivalent expressions so they'll both get you the answer which gavin did get all right and now the penultimate question of the game gavin and jason to steal from ryan what leader of the Greek government in exile during World War II stepped down during the Decemvriana, but returned to power nearly two decades later at the head of the Center Union Party? His dismissal by King Constantine II touched off the apostasia, and he died under house arrest during the regime of the colonels, but his son led Greece from 1981 to 89, and again from 1993 to 96, and his grandson was prime minister from 2009 to 2011. Uh. <laughs> the only guy I could think of was King Constantine, so he's in the question, so it's not him. Probably not him, yeah. Man, I got nothing. I got 
Gosh, I feel like I should have heard of this fella. Seems pretty important, does a lot of different things. Like one time I was in a taxi in Greece with my mom and my sister, and this guy was telling us about how like his grandfather had been involved in the Greek resistance. He probably mentioned this fella's name, but I did not remember it. What about Greek politician names? Can we think of any? Oh my god. Greek's the worst name with name to fraud. It's like Acapopolis. Yeah. Uh, you know uh, I mean, I hope it's Papadopoulos. That name is dope, but uh, it's probably not. That's a Simpsons name, I think. G. Wilkers. Um, and then there's like, I don't know, like, are they trying to think of like recent Greek politicians because his, his grandson was in there. Yeah, who's the president of Greece or something? Huh? Prime Minister. Uh, some bleaky. Yeah, I got, I got absolutely nothing. Let's say, let's say Papadopoulos. We're going with Papadopoulos. <laughs> All right. So now I wish I had asked a question about the leader of the coup that put the regime of criminals in power because that actually was Papadopoulos. <laughs> it would have been amazing to see your reaction to that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, sadly, that is uh, not the correct answer. Ryan? Uh, this is not Papadopoulos. It's Papandreou. Yeah. I heard of Papandreou. Good stuff, Ryan. Good stuff. Oh. Don't ask me what... I think I know which one the grandfather is. I think that's Georgios, and then his grandson's Alexander, if I'm remembering correctly. Both him and his grandson are Georgios. Oh, okay. Maybe the father is Alexander, I think. Andreas. I might be wrong. Uh, Andre, yeah. Yeah, but uh, basically a dynasty within Greek politics over the yeah. half century. All right. Yeah, that was Ryan. And now the final question of the game for Ryan and Gavin to steal from Jason. Debuting in The Strange Experiment of Dr. Erdl in 1955, Detective Comics number 225, who is often considered the first superhero created during the Silver Age of comic books? Um, well, it's not one of the, like, you know, it's not Superman. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. We can... All right, Strange Experiment. Like, probably someone... What about the Incredible Hulk? Like, I, I mean... Like, somebody who's, like, the result of some weird science thing, right? Yeah, I, I'd go with that, although the Hulk was famously created by a different doctor. And never mind. Uh, you know more than I do, uh, so it's not the Hulk. But I still think it's got to be someone who was created in some kind of yeah. scientific, like, deal. Um, yeah, I agree. But how um, Captain America's not really a strange experiment, right? That's more of a cryogenic freezing deal uh i don't know yeah i mean i'd be fine going with that i really don't know i don't have anything better it's not wolverine he's from like 1890s canada or whatever dr erdl though that sounds kind of like a i mean it sounds like paul erdush right like are there any hungarian superheroes so i probably shouldn't say this but i mean the game is basically decided now i think it won't make that much of a difference reread the question and notice a couple of words that you haven't been paying attention to uh detective yeah well i mean detective comics is a is like a, a series but i also don't know any superheroes who are particularly I detective like i feel like jason knows this and is just waiting for us to stop screwing around yeah doctor strange you know i have no idea uh Let's, let's say up. let's say Captain America. We're going with Captain America. Whatever. So as I'm sure Jason is aware, Detective Comics isn't just a series. It's literally what DC Comics is. 
Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so, so all of your guesses from the Marvel Universe were kind of <laughs> doomed from the start. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Who is it, Jason? Okay. So, yes, I did know it was DC Comics, so I at least have a 50-50 chance. I think Dr. Ertl was sending radio waves that ended up hitting Mars and ended up summoning the Martian Manhunter, Ja'an Ja'ans. Martian Manhunter is my final answer. Yeah, John, I think he went by John Jones or something like that, but... Um, yeah, yeah, Mar- go, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, yeah. And then a character on Supergirl, notably in the TV show, but... Yeah, um, my roommate watched that. He was named John. <laughs> yes. There you go. Martian Manhunter. <laughs> Probably if you said John, I would have given it to you, because that is the name he went by. What if we said UFC champion John Jones? <laughs> That would have been hard. That would be like the time I was trying to ask for a television series protagonist, and a team answered, the television series Bones. And I was like, I really, really want to give you credit for that, but you, you just, I'm asking about the person Bones, and you just said the television series Bones. The skeletal component Bones. <laughs> it was like, if I asked, what detective, blah, 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 and they were like, the TV show Columbo. <laughs> All right, so five points to Jason on that, and we'll end on scores of Gavin, 50.0, Ryan, 29.2, Jason, 38.2. Well, Gavin, wow. Yep. Good game, guys. Um, I think I got really lucky there because on the one hand, Ryan and I had like a crazy WWE <laughs> mind meld, and on the other hand, Jason and I both know together, Jason, yeah. probably not as much as Ryan does, but Jason and I both know a decent amount about basketball. Yeah, um, yeah, and neither Jason nor I are up on our geometry, so. <laughs> or or Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, or get or yeah, or Song of Ice yeah, and Fire. I, I yeah. got I got very lucky with the categories. Yeah, that is oftentimes it's just which categories collide and which ones don't overlap that are, that end up being the deciding factor here. But yeah, that's yeah. excellent scores from everyone and a very high score from Gavin this season. And we're only a couple episodes into this season. It seems like the games are high scoring, which maybe means I've just dropped the difficulty or maybe it just means people are either getting lucky or know their categories really well. You didn't you know? drop the difficulty of the first round. <laughs> Those were impossible. What were right. we... T- Two, Jason and Ryan got two apiece, and I got zero. Oh, yeah, those are hard. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a tough round. Yeah, those those are meant to be hard, but no one's... I don't think any... Collectively, I don't think any group of three has gotten more than six so far, but only one group of three went 0 for 27 across all nine of them. That <laughs> happened in episode four. Since then, at least a, a few of them have been gotten by some people. All right, so we'll, uh, again, this yeah, this will be very easy to edit. This is one of the shortest taping sessions ever. Um, but <laughs> we'll finish by allowing each of you to basically make any kind of statement you want about anything. It can be about the game, about the world at large, about some combination of those things, whatever's on your mind, whatever you want to plug. It's up to you. As long as it's not too long or offensive, it will be kept in. And we'll go in reverse placement order. So we will start with Gavin. Well, I'm Gavin, and what I want to talk about is the 1899 Cleveland Spiders, 
who won 20 games and lost 134. <laughs> they scored 529 runs and allowed 1,252. They lost 101 games on the road. And the reason this happened was because in the 1890s, it was for some reason not illegal for the same people to own multiple teams. So these guys, the Robeson brothers, owned the Cleveland Spiders and the St. Louis Perfectos. And they gave all the Spiders good players, including Cy Young, to the Perfectos and made the Cleveland Spiders the worst team ever. They were contracted after 1899. And just very briefly, my favorite player on the team was a pitcher named Frank Bates, who went 1-18 in and hit more batters than he struck out. And that is, that is my favorite baseball team of all time, and that is what I have chosen to promote. I'm Gavin Burns. I'm Burns G. Kanye Westeros on Learned League. Thanks for doing this. Route Y. All right. Yeah, that, okay, that's why you wanted to talk about this entire question. Yeah, you know, Westeros, uh, Kanye Westeros the third. So with, you know, the relatively small number of episodes and the many diverse specialties people had, you would think that would be the first time the 1899 Cleveland Spiders were discussed on this podcast. In fact, in episode nine, Stephen Oppenheim went off on the 1899 Cleveland Spiders. <laughs> Not in quite as much detail as you, but he did tell the exact same story. <laughs> well, I mean, good for Stephen Oppenheim. Wow. Right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now, one of the bonus questions you didn't get, which was going to combine mental math and baseball knowledge. I may as well just toss it out there. I mentioned Hal Newhouser was on the 1954 Cleveland Indians, or maybe I didn't mention it, but I meant to mention it. It was a reliever, went seven and two that season, and one of four members of their pitching staff that year who ended up in the Hall of Fame. But they had, they set a still a record that still stands in the American League for winning percentage at 721. Do you know how many games they won that season? It went 111 and 43. Right. So if, if you had, didn't have that on the top of your head, it would have been a fun mental math exercise. I would have probably prohibited pen and paper then, see if you could work it out mentally. But uh, you knew the exact number, too. So that's another way of getting it. All right. Jason? Hi, I'm Jason. I just want to thank you, guys for having me and everyone else on the show. It was such a fun way to spend a Saturday afternoon in these crazy times we're in. A quick bit of shameless self-promotion. I, uh, I have a... YouTube sort of video podcast where I read puns that I write. It's called Pun Gazing. And just find Jason Luna on social media, Twitter, Facebook. Come stalk me sometime. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how to build my celebrity profile here. So this is just this is a good stepping stone, I think. So thank you very much, Yogesh. It was very fun. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And Ryan. Hi, I'm Ryan. Not really anything to plug here. Yeah, I, I guess thanks, thanks to Yogesh for uh, having me on this. Like It's always great to meet more trivia people uh, across the country. That's all for me. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess across the country and even across the globe, if this expands, one of the really cool things about quarantine is getting to compete in trivia competitions with people in all different countries. I've been competitions of the UK or European quizzers, even Australian and New Zealand quizzers. Yeah, it is sometimes very annoying trying to set up times with all the time difference. Yeah. Hey Jason, I've got a I've got a pun trivia question for you. What would you call Yogesh if he was somehow had a WWE gimmick that was his trivia prowess? It's particular specifically his oh. learned prowess. The the route answer? I was gonna go with Rowdy Route Y Piper. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, no, that's uh, definitely it is fun to, you know, meet yeah, people from around the world, although, you know, sometimes you'll end up having to get up really early in the morning or stay up late at night because of a scheduling issue. So far, I think Bill Pennington is the only real overseas person who's been on this podcast. There have been people from other countries, but they were residing in the U.S. at the time you know, when they recorded. But I definitely, you know, have some interest now from I've, I've also gotten to know a lot of people in England, especially through like Paulson has uh, Zoom quizzes. And, you know, I'm definitely interested in at some point having them, you know, working out the time difference. Yeah. All right. That's it. This has been episode two of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Thanks for listening.